All right, good morning, everybody. All right, if you got your Bibles and you would like to follow along, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 30 and verses 1 through 24. Genesis chapter 30 and 1 through 24, the title of our lesson is The Battle of the Brides. The Battle of the Brides. Now, I feel like I need to give a warning you know how uh, sometimes you watch television shows or movies and they always give you a warning uh, before they start um, that this, you know, there, there's some, the, the Bible is, there's one thing about the Bible is it's very truthful. It, it's not risque. It's not like Hollywood. It doesn't go out of its way to, to, to over-glamorize things, but it also just tells the truth. It, it's, it, you know, doesn't, doesn't try to gloss over anything. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. So kind of tongue-in-cheek this morning, I thought, you know, I might need to give a warning uh, about this, this lesson. Today's uh, text, or today's passage, is really a, a case study of a family at war. And it is also a commentary on uh, the, the problem, or, or the, the, uh, the thing that we call polygamy, of course, which would be having multiple wives or, or multiple husbands in a, in a marriage. Now... Polygamy is in the Bible, and it's tolerated by God, just like divorce, but it's never presented favorably uh, at, at, at any phase. You know, it always causes problems. And so God tolerated it because he was dealing with sinful men and women, but he never presents it favorably uh, in any way. Now, this, so this is all about, this chapter of these verses we're going to read, is all about a polygamous marriage. Now, you may think, well, what's that got to do with us, right? We're, we're not polygamous. We don't practice polygamy. It really has no, uh, nothing to do with us. But really, to be honest with you, the only difference between us and them is they had wives uh, simultaneously. We have them consecutively. You want to look at it that way. They, they married two, three, four women at one time. We just do it consecutively. Okay? So... Whether it's divorce, whether it's polygamy, or anything like that, God tolerates things. God understands things happen. But it's never what His ideal that He wants for us or for the, the family. And today's passage teaches us that, that if we walk in His ways and according to His standards, if we don't do that, uh, we're going to have strife in our families and we're going to have strife in our, our marriages. And this is a case study uh, in that, so let's take a a very quick review before we start. Now, as we know, uh, let's go back to Genesis 29. If you want to turn back to that chapter, and we'll just read these verses real quickly to kind of set the stage for today's passage. It says, "We all know." Well, let's start here. Jacob, of course, <clears throat> goes to Mesopotamia. Uh, he ends up marrying two women. Uh, he's in love with a girl named Rachel. Uh, but on his wedding night, it's dark, he's, he's had a little bit too much wine, and the, uh, the dad, uh, Laban, sneaks in the older daughter. And so the next morning, he figures it all out, he's all angry about it, and, his, and, and Laban says, I tell you what you do, fulfill the seven-day honeymoon, and after that, you can marry uh, Rachel. So he marries two women in eight days. And so they, they kind of start their life together. He's got to serve another seven years and we pick up in Genesis 29, verses 31 to 35. It says, When the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. 
For she said, The Lord has surely looked on my affliction. Now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I've borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived a fourth time and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. And then she stopped bearing. So some, a little bit of time has gone past. Uh, Leah has given birth to, to four sons, and she stops bearing. Now, I figure th- this is so crazy. We're going to need a scoreboard, okay? I mean, I never thought in a lesson I would have to throw up a scoreboard. But we're going to need a scoreboard to keep track of all the goings-ons that's going on in this family. So we're going to end up with four women that are going to be involved here. Leah, Zilpa, who is Leah's maid. Rachel, and then Bilhah, who is Rachel's maid. So right now, we've got four sons, uh, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And we pick up with what happens next. Now, in a, in a polygamous marriage, we've got two sisters married to one man. Obviously, there's going to be some envy and there's going to be jealousy. And that's exactly what happened. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. It says, When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children... She envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, give, Jacob, give me children or I will or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the, of the womb? Now, here's right now, neither, like I said, when you look at these people, they're not any of them really likable to be, to be quite honest with you. They're, they all got issues and stuff. And so here they are, and neither one of them really react very piously or very spiritually. Uh, Rachel, it says flat out she's got envy uh, in her against her, her sister. And, and rather than ra- recognize that this is coming from God, she turns that against Jacob. She blames him. That happens a lot in, our, in marriages. It's, it's, you know, it's hard to blame God, right? He's not there. We can't really necessarily just, you know, get face to face. So we turn our anger toward our spouse and take it out on, on them. And that's exactly what she did. She says, this is all your fault. Now, of course, Jacob is standing there saying, look, I got four sons over here. It ain't my fault, right? Um, this is between you and God. And so he kind of turns it back on her and he gets angry that she would even, even, even say that. Now, Real quickly, before we move on, you might ask, well, how should he have reacted? Okay. Well, there are examples in the, in the Bible where the same thing happened and the man reacted uh, differently. I'll give you one. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, uh, this is the story of, of Samuel and the birth of Samuel. It says, There was a certain man of Ramathan Zophan of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, and he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. And on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year after year. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? 
Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So here we've got this idea of same thing going on, but he shows her this tenderness, right? He, he even gives her special treatment because of her barrenness. And that's one way to handle it, and I think he handled it the right way. Even in Genesis 25, you remember when Isaac married Rebekah. Rebekah is barren for 20 years. And the Bible tells us Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Y'all remember that? So he reacted, even Isaac, who had all kind of problems, he reacted in the right way. Jacob does none of this. We don't see Jacob giving her special treatment. We don't see him being tender toward her. We don't see him uh, even, it never mentions that he prayed for her or anything like that. So although we are told that Jacob loved Rachel, it's probably not very evident to her in the way that he's acting. So seeing her sister blessed in this way, she just gets more envious and more jealous. So she decides to do something about it. Verse 3. Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. Now, when you read this, you cannot help but notice the similarity to Sarah, right? Everybody in your mind, you immediately think back to what Sarah did in Genesis chapter 16. Now, each of them is trying to circumvent the natural way to have children by a, a, child, a child. So in that day, if you had a maid, if she had a child by your husband, you basically adopted that child, okay? If you had a servant or you had a slave... You, you could adopt that child. And that was one way that they used to kind of... By the way, today we have IVF and we have surrogacy. We have other ways. that They were just doing then what we do today. Everybody got that? We do the exact same thing today. They just didn't have all the scientific stuff, so they just figured out another way. That's just... You know, I'm telling you, the more you read this stuff, people are just people. They'll always try to figure out a way. We just do it with science. They did it through their maids or their servants or their slaves. That's exactly what they did. So both of them say, okay, if I can't have one naturally, I'm going to do it another way. Now, beyond that, the, the situations are similar, but they're also very different, okay? Sarah, you, you can kind of understand what Sarah did, right? I mean, she's old. She's past the age of childbearing. Abraham has no children, right? But keep in mind, Jacob already has four sons, so she's not trying to give Jacob children. He's already got sons. So this is not for Jacob. In, in the end, Rachel, too, is not old. She's still, on the, she's still in the age of childbearing years. So her demand comes out of one thing and one thing only, and that's jealousy and envy. She's not doing it for Abraham. She's not doing it for, for the family line. She's not doing it for any quote-unquote good reason. She's doing it strictly out of her own pride and jealousy. She wanted children of her own, and she'd do anything uh, to get them. Verses 4 through 6. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God has judged me. That word judged there means vindicated. God has vindicated me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan, which means judge. Now, I want you to notice her response sounds very spiritual, doesn't it? God has vindicated me. She brings God into it, right? Somehow, and by the way, he's vindicated her against what? 
her sister. See, she sees herself, and you'll see this as the story goes on, she sees herself in a battle with her sister, a war with her sister, a contest with her sister. And so when she says, God has vindicated me, she's literally meaning he sided with me against my sister. Very, very spiritual sounding. But the fact is, listen, the only dispute is in her mind, right? There's no real dispute here going on. It's just in her mind. She's built this thing up. Now, she, there's going to be another baby born, and I think her statement when this next baby is born gives us more of an idea of what's going on in her life. Verses 7 through 8. Rachel's servant, <coughs> excuse me, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and prevailed. Well, there it is. With mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. Therefore, she called his name Naphtali, which means wrestling. So in her mind, she's got this battle going on with her, with her sister. This, it's this great struggle. It's not with God. It's not with Jacob. It's not with herself. It's with her, her sister. And so her main interest, let's be very clear, her main interest in having a child is that she wins out over her sister. That's, her, that's the main thing in her mind uh, right now. Now, when I'm doing the math, how two adopted boys went out over four naturals, I got no idea. Right, but in her mind, she has she has uh, she she's won this contest. Right, so that's what she's preoccupied in this marriage. Again, she's not she's not thinking about the family line. She's not thinking about trying to give Jacob children. She's preoccupied with winning this 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 uh, perceived battle with her sister. So if we're keeping score, we're now up to six children, six sons in this family: Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah by Leah. And now you've got Dan and Naphtali by Rachel's uh, maid. Now, how does Leah respond to this, right? Well, let's see. Now, when we left off with Leah, her last son was named Judah. And, she, and, and that name means praise. And she's literally come to the point where she's kind of just pretty much given up on Jacob's love. I mean, one, he'll love me. Number two, he'll love me. Number three, maybe he'll be attached to me. Number four, just praise the Lord, right? Because <laughs> he's just not going to do this thing. So we, we left her at a place where it seemed like she had kind of turned her attention uh, to God. But now she seems to get caught up in this battle with her sister and allows her own jealousy to take over. Verse 9, When Leah saw that she had seized bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Now, what you need to see here is there is absolutely no reason to do this. None. She's already got four sons. That, that is good. By the way, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, gave him two sons, right? Sarah gave only one son to Abraham. She's already given Jacob four sons. There is no reason that she needs to have any more children. There's, there's no reason to do this but except for one because she's, she's in this battle with Rachel, right? If Rachel can do it, then I can do it. Verses 10 through 12. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad, which means good fortune. And Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. Now I want you to notice what happens, okay? I want you to notice how her speech betrays her. When she had Judah, she named him Praise. Praise be to God. God has given me this son. God has blessed me. 
now she's gone from worrying about what God thinks to worrying about what other women think. Did everybody see that? Let me back that up a little bit. Leah said, happy and I for women. Everybody will look at me and call me blessed. See, they're just... What happens is when we get caught up in these earthly things, when we get caught up in these earthly little battles, what happens is our mind is completely taken off of God and start. you just get caught up in what does everybody else think. Everybody see that? And it, it, it betrays itself in her language. Again, previously she views her children as a gift from God. Now she's just saying, hey, other women will come. Now it's about how happy I am, how fortunate I am, how... How all of this stuff. It's just a completely a move from an from a, a eternal viewpoint to a temporal viewpoint. And as, as we said, we can see that in the way that her uh, uh, thinking has shifted from what God thinks to what other women think. So it seems that in the process, she's kind of sacrificed her godliness to get caught up in this jealousy battle with her sisters. So if we're keeping score... We're up to eight boys now, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah from Leah, uh, Gad and Asher from Leah's maid Zilpah, and then Dan and Naphtali from, um, from Bilhah, uh, uh, Rachel's maid. Okay? Now, now, so is this a weird story? Yes? All right, it's fixing to get weirder. Okay. Verse 14. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. And Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Okay, what is a mandrake and why would they want this mandrake? Well, a mandrake is a plant. Uh, it still grows in Israel today. It's very common in Israel. And it belongs to the potato family. So it's kind of got a green, if you, uh, we've got potatoes planted right now. And it's got a very green kind of coarse uh, leaf on it. And if you dig it up, obviously... Uh, it's not a round potato. In fact, some people say it almost looks like a human. If you look at the, at the plant, it's got little arms and legs and, and things like that. It's called a, called a mandrake. Now, mandrakes are not edible for food. They're too poisonous to just... You can't just boil them and eat them like mashed potatoes or, or anything like that. Or you can't fry them up and make french fries out of them or anything like that. They're too poisonous for that. But they possess a narcotic quality. They actually were used in in ancient times as, a, as an, almost like an anesthesia. If you need to kind of dull pain, you'd mix this up. In fact, they're still used in herbal medicines in the Middle East today. But that's not what makes them interesting to our story. The name in Hebrew is dudaim, which means love plants. So the plant was believed back then to be an aphrodisiac by the ancients. And beyond that, it was also believed to increase fertility or to, to increase the, uh, your chances of conception. Okay? Now, if you couple that with the fact that it's, it's supposed to be able to, uh, an aphrodisiac, it's supposed to increase your chances of conception, this mandrake plant, couple that with the fact that it was very rarely found, and this is true today, in Mesopotamia, which is about five, it's very common in Israel, but it's very rare if you get up into northern Iraq and southern Turkey, which is where Mesopotamia is today, or, or, or was today. And so up there it was very rare. So for somebody to go out, and remember, they're still in Haran. They're still uh, roughly five or 600 miles north of Israel. It was very rare to find those plants. 
So if you couple that with the fact that it's this aphrodisiac and it's also it's supposed to increase your chances of conception, you can see why Leah and Rachel wanted it. Okay, they both wanted it. Look at verse 15. But she, Rachel said to her, this is uh, Leah said to Rachel, but Leah said to Rachel, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you also take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. Okay. All right, we need to read between the lines here just a little bit, okay? It seems that once Leah stopped bearing children, Jacob stopped coming to her tent, okay? Look at what she says. It is, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? He's not coming to her anymore. He's not coming to her tent uh, anymore. He's now spending all of his time with Rachel. So that's a situation. Here's Leah. You know, she, she needs Jacob to come back, and he's not there. He's over there spending all his time with, with Rachel, okay? So Leah's greatest need is to get Jacob to come back to see her and kind of let nature take its course. Rachel, on the other hand, she's got Jacob. Her biggest problem is that she can't conceive right? So you can see they strike a bargain, all right? It says, Leah says, okay, I'll give you these mandrakes, but I get Jacob. And, 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 and you can kind of see the hold Rachel had because she's been able to say, yeah, you can have him, right? I mean, and, and if you're asking your question, what, where is Jacob in all this, right? That's a good question. We're going to come back to him in a little while and beat him over the head because he needs a whooping, Somebody needs to take him outside and put a pair of pants on him and say, you need to settle some stuff in your house, right? But he ain't doing nothing. This, this guy, we'll get to him in a minute. So they make a deal, and, and, and Rachel says, okay, you can have him for the night, and I get the mandrakes because she needs the mandrakes because they're supposed to increase conception, which is her biggest uh, problem. So they, they kind of both get a win-win uh, out of this. Now listen, we may laugh at this, that these stupid people, they really think that some kind of plant is going to help you get pregnant or some kind of plant is going to do this and increase your, you know, it's going to be an aphrodisiac. Before we go too far and look at them kind of smugly, uh, smugly and say, you know what, we live in this enlightened society, we would never do on that. Let me remind you once again that Americans spend billions every year on love potions. We spend it on hair dye and, and perfumes and colognes and all of this stuff that somehow are going to make, you know, we watch the advertising, boy, if I just wear that cologne, my life is, 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 is it's on, right? And we buy it. Are you with me? We do all that stuff. We're, we're just as dumb as they are, right? Not, not a whole lot has, has changed. Verse 16, when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrake. So he lay with her that night. Now this is just, come on, let's, this is pitiful. I mean, it really is a sad and pathetic situation. He has so failed as a husband that literally his wife had to resort to a form of prostitution to purchase his time. That's how, what a mess this marriage has devolved. And, and by the way, his wives are so lacking in faith that they have to resort to some kind of magic plant instead of putting their trust in God. 
I mean, it's, it's a mess. He has, there's no spiritual leadership in this home whatsoever. And the whole thing has just devolved and devolved and devolved into this absolute uh, quagmire. Verse 17 and 18. And God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar, which means wages or, or to hire. Now, here's the irony of this situation. You got this magic plant, right? Leah gives it to Rachel, but who ends up getting pregnant? Leah. It's the one who gave away the magic plant who got pregnant, not the one who took it. Again, the Lord is just showing that, hey, I'm in charge of this. Ain't no plant. Ain't none of this stuff. I, I give the power to conceive, and I take it away. God is sovereign over uh, procreation. He's sovereign over conception. He takes care of that. At the same time, notice that when Leah has this child, she wrongly interprets the meaning of God's gift for that son. She saw his birth as evidence that somehow she had done the right thing when she gave away her maid. Well, that wasn't true at all, right? But that's how she saw it. Listen, in our, when I was reading this, a thought came to me is that not a lot has changed. I say that all the time. But people will always try to sanctify their sins. People will always try to sanctify their sins. We'll do the wrong thing. And then when good things happen on the other side of it, we'll look back and say, well, see, God was in that. I, I, I made the right decision. Just because God hadn't struck you down and he lets life just moves along like the same for a while, we look back and we try to sanctify the wrong that we did. That's exactly God has has vindicated me. God has sided with me. God has, has, has gave me my wages because I did the right thing. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. God just blessed you with another son. Okay? See, spiritual words don't make spiritual works. Let me say it again. Just because you say the right spiritual word doesn't make your works spiritual. Verses 19 and 20. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son, and Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun, which means honor. So now we are up to ten. Okay? Leah has given him six sons. Uh, her maid Zilpah has given him two. Rachel's maid uh, Bilhah has given him two. And Rachel has still got a big fat zero. She, she hasn't done anything yet. So we're up to ten sons. Now... It, in verse 21, there's an interesting statement, just almost out of the blue. It says this, Afterward, talking about Leah, she bore a daughter, and she called her name Dinah. And then it just moves on, okay? There's a reason it's doing this, okay? In about four chapters, there is going to be a tragic event that happens regarding Dinah, okay? So what the Bible's doing here is just introducing her so that when we get a a few chapters down the road, and all of a sudden there's this thing that happens with Dinah. We're not sitting there wondering, where'd she come from? Right? So he's just introducing Dinah to let us know there was a daughter born here, and she's going to become important in about four more, four more chapters. Okay? Now, after all this time and all this stuff going on, the Bible tells us that God remembers Rachel. Verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her, and he opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, which means may he add, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. 
So God finally opens Rachel's womb, and she has what she's always wanted, and that is a child. Now, if you go back and look at the verse, it says God listened to her. Okay? Now, was she praying all along, or did she just start praying after the mandrakes and all the other stuff seemed to fail? We don't know. It doesn't say. I can tell you a lot of people do that. We try everything in the world. When all that's failed, we finally pray. Okay, I would, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me at all if that's what Rachel did, but we don't know. It doesn't tell us that. Now, her, she names him Joseph, which means may he add. She wants another son. By the way, she will have one more son, but she will die. That son will cost her her life, as we'll see um, uh, in, the, in the next couple chapters. So as we stop right here, We've got 11 sons. We obviously are building the what? The 12 tribes of Israel. Israel means Jacob. Jacob means Israel. These are the 12 sons of Jacob or the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what's being built right here. Um, So we've got 11 sons been born to Jacob through these uh, four women. As we said, we got one more uh, to go. Now I want to, we've got a few minutes here. I want to close with a few uh, implications or lessons. When I started out this past week, I was going to cover the whole chapter. I just thought, well, I'm going to do chapter 30. But I got to this point, and I thought, man, there are so many things here, so many life lessons, so many implications or applications uh, for us that I need to kind of stop and, um, and go through a few of these. So I'm just going to point out a few things, and, and you can kind of take them back and, and give, you, give them some thought a little bit later. Just a, just a few things that came up. Um, a few things that this story teaches, okay? I want to remind you, who wrote Genesis? Moses. When did he write it? When did he write it? Later, I'm not sure what that means. When did he write it? He wrote it after he had led the children of Israel out of Egypt, right? Forty years in the desert. They're getting ready to enter the promised land, and he writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, he writes Genesis. He'll write the others later. I mean, he wrote the others a little bit later. But he writes Genesis, and he, he wants them to read it before they go in to the promised land. Everybody with me? Okay. He's writing it for the Israeli people before they go into the, the promised land. So he, there's a lot of things. It was originally written for them, so there's a lot of things they could learn from it. So, for example, one of the things they might learn is the wisdom of the law. In Leviticus 18.18, it says this, You shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. In other words, what Jacob did, don't do that. And and they might have wondered, well, why can't I take... Well, there you go. There's your example right here. Nothing good comes out of this. It's a mess. Don't do that. So one thing that the Israeli people, uh, the people of Israel would have learned is don't do that. The law is, has a lot of wisdom in, in what it says. It also would have been very humbling for them uh, to read. Do you understand that for the Israelites, you're God's chosen people? Do you understand how easy it would have been over time to kind of get, get full of yourself? To look, look at other nations and say, boy, we're, we're God's chosen people. Y'all are not. Right and and and, if, and after a while you start thinking well maybe I'm chosen because we're special it's our uh, our genetics are better than everybody else or whatever reason right but here's this story of how your nation got started and let's just be honest it's embarrassing 
It's embarrassing. You don't look back and see these great people. You see these weird people, right? They're just, spiritually, they're pretty lame, and they just do stupid stuff, and it's just embarrassing. So it would have been humbling for them. It would serve to remind them that you're no different from anybody else. The reason you're chosen is because I chose you for my own reasons, for my own plans, for my own purposes, not because there was anything different about you or good about you or better about you. Don't trust in your heritage. Trust in the God of your heritage. And by the way, you remember Jesus comes to the, uh, uh, to the Pharisees, and what did they say to him? What are you saying all this to us? We're children of Abraham. We're special. Remember that? And he had to debunk all that. No, no, you're not. So this would, have, he, he, this would have served for them to look back and keep them humble and let them know that their, who they are had nothing to do with their beginnings. It had to do with the fact that God chose them. Another thing we see here, and I want to address this. We re, when you read the Old Testament, and we saw this with Sarah, you, you see a real change in women's values over time. Okay, In that culture, women tended to determine their value based on how many children and especially how many sons they could give to their husband. We, we've seen this all throughout the Old Testament. Women, when they can't have children, it just kills them, right? And a lot of it is because they, that's their value. That, that determines their worth. What did Leah say? Happy am I. Women will call me blessed, right? Women will call me happy. So there was a real system back then in, in, internally in them that they staged their value uh, or they evaluated their value based on how many children. Now, has that changed? Absolutely, that's changed. We live in a society now where, and I'm not saying all women, of course, but many women would consider having more than one child or more than two child a burden more than a, than a blessing. Birth control is really seen as, an, as, a, as a key to freedom, and by the way, if the birth control fails, we just, we won't, people are just aborting babies left and right, right? Most of the time, just out of pure convenience. Yes or no? Pure convenience. I mean, it is, it is instead of now looking at the, the value of children, we just see them as an inconvenience, and, and the amount of abortions in this country is just, it's, it's ridiculous what goes on, right? Now, here's, here's what I want you to see. I'm not going to advocate that that women throw away birth control. I'm not going to advocate that women start having 15, 14, 16. I'm not going down that road, right? But what I want to say is this. As a woman, and, and this is true as a man, by the way, you're never going to find value in a career. You, you should never try to find your value in your husband or your marriage. Find your value in him. Find your value in him. It's not about, oh, I'm a, back then they found their value in their, how many children they have. Today they find it in how much money they make or what kind of career they have or, or whatever, how much they volunteer, whatever. And I'm telling you, both of those are the wrong way to put value on yourself. You value yourself because you belong to Him. That's what makes you valuable, okay? That is the, you want to be content, you want to be fulfilled, you find that in God. You don't find it in children. You don't find it in a husband. You don't find it in family. You find it in God and God alone. Okay? Keep, please remember that in mind, whether you're a woman or a man. Okay? So that's, those other things are never going to bring you. The worship of God is what we were created for. A relationship with Him is what we were made for. 
That, that, if you take a piece of machinery that was made for something and it fits perfect, that's where we fit perfect. That's why we find our contentment and our fulfillment in Him, never anywhere else. Everything else is, is a lost cause, okay? Isaiah 55, 2 says this, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? That describes a many a human being, right? Listen diligent to me, to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. The Bible says, come to me, listen to my word. There you'll find the food that satisfies the soul. Put your trust, put your fulfillment, your contentment, your desires in God and God alone. Now, I said we were going to talk a little bit about Jacob, so we are. You know, maybe it's because I'm a man, but when I read this story... My attention doesn't go to Leah and Rachel. My attention keeps going back to him. And everything, I'm just, I'm like, where are you, Jacob? Jacob just goes in. Jacob just goes along. Jacob just does this. Jacob just does. Never, and I'm just thinking, <laughs> I mean, my attention goes to him. Take, for example, let's, let's look at a few things. Let's take Rachel's inability to conceive. As I mentioned earlier, we never see him praying for her. As his own father, and by the way, he had that example in his life. His own father prayed for his own mother. But we never see him uh, doing anything like that. When Rachel offers him Bilhah and says, here, take my maid, he just, he just goes along with it. We never see him raise his voice. By the way, he knew his grandfather, Abraham, had done that. He knew that had caused a lot of trouble in that family. Yet he never opened his mouth. He just went right along. His wives start having sons, and they're naming them all, right, in this battle. I mean, listen, either the man, the man knew what was going on in his own household, right? He knew this jealousy. He knew the envy. He could tell by the names, God has vindicated me, right? He, he knows what's going on, and he never stands up and puts a stop to it. He just lets it play out. He's, you know, he's just one of those guys. And then finally, what you would have thought would have been the last straw, when Leah comes out to meet him in the field and says, I have hired you for the night. I mean, come on. What, what kind of man just goes along with that? Why don't you call a family meeting and put your foot down and say, all right, this is how it's going to be. From I mean, do something. Do something. But just, just to go along with this is, is absolutely ridiculous. So here's... Jacob is this guy, and he's literally, he's like, it's like watching a tennis match. Well, there goes Rachel, and there goes Leah, and there goes Bilhah, and there goes Zilpah. He's just passed over the net, back and forth, just, you know, whatever. He never raises his, his voice to instruct them. In fact, this is a sad part. When his family really needed him, he was, he was absent. When his family really needed spiritual leadership, he was nowhere to be found. And that is, a, that is a sad, sad statement uh, to, to describe, put over a man's life or over his tombstone or whatever. When his family needed him, he wasn't there. And that's exactly what Jacob did. You see, a husband is responsible to set the spiritual climate in his family. He is the one that's supposed to lead that family, especially in a situation like that where you've got two people going at each other. You've got to step in. That's your job. That's your responsibility, but not Jacob. He is, he is absolutely nowhere to be uh, found. I want to close with some, I mean, this, to be honest with you, when I read this story, I feel like I need to go wash my hands. 
There's not a lot of good news in it, to be honest with you. Not a lot of nice people, not a lot of people doing spiritual things. So I do want to close out with one thing that I think is really good about this story. And that is this. God's kingdom is made up of unkingdom-like people. Let me say it again. God's kingdom is made up of unkingdom-like people. If you go back to Genesis and you look at the people God is using, they're not spiritual giants. Isaac was not a spiritual giant. Uh, Jacob, not a, a spiritual giant. Many of these boys that are born to these women are not spiritual giants at all. But God is building a people for himself. God is, is taking these imperfect people, these sometimes messed up people, and he's building a kingdom. Now, in the Old Testament, he's building a people that we're going to call the Jews. But it never ceases to amaze me when I read the Old Testament is just how imperfect they were, right? Now, why is this encouraging? Well, it encourages me because I'm not perfect. And it should encourage you because you're not perfect. There's many of us in this, in this room, we belong to the kingdom of God, but we are very unkingdom-like people, let's be honest. Yes? I mean, God is still building a kingdom today, and the good news is He still accepts and still uses unkingdom-like people. And that encourages me that I don't... He can still use me. I don't, I, you know, I don't have to become some kind of spiritual giant for God to use me. He was, he was doing it back then, and he's still doing it today. And for that, we should all say thank God. Thank God for that. Next week, we're going to turn to a really interesting story. And uh, I, 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 don't know, I don't know if y'all know this. I raised some goats, and next, year, next week, for the very first time, I will be able to use my goats in my lesson. I've been wanting to use my goats in my lessons for a long time. And next week is the... Ab I was walking out there yesterday, and I looked at them, and I thought, there's the story of Jacob and Laban right out there in my field. A perfect example of the story of Jacob and Laban right out in my, in my field. So I'll take a picture of them this week and bring it to you next week, and, and you'll get to see uh, what, what God is doing with a bunch of goats and Jacob and Laban. And we'll read that in the last part of uh, Genesis. Let's pray. Father.